Good morning. My name is Bryce. Great to see you this morning, uh, all of you. Um, if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Mark chapter 14? We are this summer making our way through the book of Mark, and we're approaching the end of the book of Mark, and Jesus has, and his disciples have now uh, arrived in Jerusalem for the final days of Jesus' life and ministry um, here on earth, at least. And um, so let's stand as we read together uh, Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 12. You can find that on page 850 in, uh, in the Blue Church Bible. Mark 14, starting at verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jug of water will meet you. Follow him, and whenever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to one another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is, my, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? God, would you um, give us ears to hear? Would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us uh, hearts to behold minds to imagine uh, what you are doing for us as we consider uh, these words, as we celebrate this meal um, this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Okay, so how is your summer going? Um, my, my kids are counting down the days, not with anticipation, um, until the end of summer. Um, it's, you know, it's funny, isn't it? Um, uh, I, I mean, I, I haven't gone to school in 10, 12 years, but we still live on like the school calendar schedule. Um, and uh, it, it seems like, um, you know, summer has been this kind of, uh, this, um, you know, summer is always this thing that we look forward to with anticipation. And um, <laughs> it's almost the end of summer, and I don't know about you guys, but I'm, I'm ready <laughs> for summer to be over. 
Um, I, I realized, I was talking to a friend this, this past week on the phone, and we were talking about, and we just kind of came to this epiphany, and um, the, the epiphany is that summer sucks. <laughs> I, I don't want this to be a total downer, maybe, this, maybe you love summer, um, and it's great, but I feel like I haven't had a normal week, um, every week is out of the ordinary, and so I don't feel rested, and I don't feel ready for the normal of the school year. Um, I cannot wait for the routine of the school year to to, uh, to kind of come back. I don't know if that if that um, strikes a chord with you at all, um, but we kind of had this moment this last week that I feel like encapsulated that whole reality, because um, Ashley and I got away from our home from for 24 hours earlier this week. Uh, my parents uh, very graciously had uh, got us a night at this really nice um, inn in um, Ojai. And uh, we spent a night there, and we had this incredible dinner. Um, there's this old oak tree, like 200-year-old oak tree, and there's a patio at the restaurant where you sit underneath the oak tree. And we made a dinner reservation for 8.15, right as the sun's going down. And uh, there's lanterns lighting up the uh, tree, and it's just, you know, it's just, oh, it's so nice. It's just, uh, um, we sat there for, I don't know, two hours and ate dinner. We have to get away from the kids so we can talk about them. Um, and uh, had a really, really great meal. And uh, it was wonderful. But, but I think in a way that meal kind of ruined the whole week. <laughs> because the next day we had to come back home and go back to real life. And I came back kind of at the end of my work day one day this week. And everybody's grumpy and upset. And I'm like, what is going on? And, Ashley and I talked about, like, that dinner just ruined the week because you come home and you have to, like, do dishes again. <laughs> you have to eat leftovers sometimes, and it's, you know, there isn't a chef preparing filet mignon for you. What, what is good? Like, um, that great meal, like, ruined the ordinary life of this week for me. Um, and, and I don't mean to be, like, all doom and gloom about it, but um, I, I say that just to say this. This morning... Um, well, I think it's often the case that kind of these peak moments in our lives, uh, these great experiences, these moments where we kind of cut away or, or you know, have this like incredibly luxurious experience or uh, we just get this chance to rest. Um, uh, th- those peak moments can often make it harder to deal with everyday, normal day in and day out life. And I say that to say this, that this passage we're looking at in the Bible this morning is talking about a meal that actually works in the opposite direction. Um, The Lord's Supper or communion is a simple meal that prepares us for life in the real world. In this meal, what God is doing is he is reminding us what he has done for us. And he's actually saying, take this and eat it. It's not enough just to see that this has been done for you, but you need to somehow get this in you. So take it and eat it. Consume it because um, in this meal, God confirms our identity and reforms us for life in this world. So I just want to do two things, talk about two things this morning. Uh, And the first is the the meaning of the Lord's Supper. For 2,000 years... Uh, the Lord's Supper or a communion or the Eucharist has been celebrated uh, every, at least once a week, you know, somewhere in the world, right? For 2,000 years in, in grand cathedrals and sometimes in hiding 
in, uh, in some places with a very elaborate and formal ritual, in other places in very casual um, and, uh, and, and kind of common ways. Uh, God's people have celebrated the Lord's Supper. It's a meal that Christians, that brings Christians together. But what does it mean? Uh, what does it actually mean? What are we doing when we celebrate the Lord's Supper? So to understand what the meaning of the Lord's Supper is all about, we have to understand that Jesus celebrates the first, kind of institutes the Lord's Supper during the Passover. It said that right at the beginning of the pas- uh, this passage we read, that it's the first day of unleavened bread when they sacrificed the Passover lamb that Jesus gathers his people, uh, his disciples together. Now the Passover, whoa, <laughs> um, the Passover is sort of, has sort of like the significance in the life of the Jewish people that Thanksgiving has in the life of Americans. Um, it's a story of the origin of this new nation that's commemorated in an annual sort of ritualized meal that sort of confirms the identity of the people. Does that make sense? Um, communion, uh, or, or the Passover rather, uh, because of this was an incredibly important part of forming the identity of the Jewish people. It reminded them of, of what God had done for them and who, and therefore who they were. And so um, the story of the first Passover goes all the way back to the book of Exodus, where God's people had been living at, in, as slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And after 400 years, God raises up Moses and he sends Moses to Pharaoh. And Moses says to Pharaoh, I want you to let the people of Israel go. And Pharaoh says, yeah, there's no chance that that is going to happen. And so God, um, God eventually sends a series of plagues on the nation of Egypt. And uh, in, in kind of increasing severity, these plagues get, get, get worse and worse for Egypt until finally, in the 10th plague, um, Pharaoh's heart is hardened and he refuses to let Israel leave. And so finally God sends the 10th plague and the angel of death passes through Egypt and takes the life of the firstborn son in every house. And God says to his people, um, because the, the Israelites are, are just as guilty as the Egyptians, right? Um, and so God says to his people, I'm going to, I'm going to protect you. And you're going to take a lamb and you're going, to, you're going to kill this lamb and you're going to put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of your house. And when the angel of death passes through, he will pass over your house. And, uh, and death will pass over you um, because of the blood of the lamb. And so God delivered his people from the wrath of his justice. And he brought them out of slavery and into the promised land. And every year for thousands and thousands of years, uh, the Jewish people have, had celebrated and still continue to celebrate the Passover. Um, and uh, it's this, it's this, um, it's kind of part of the way that Jewish identity is ingrained in, into young Jewish children as they, as they grew up. Um, telling the story and remembering, this is what God has done for us, and this is how we celebrate. And so, just like Thanksgiving, I don't know if you've had this experience, but... Um, you know, Thanksgiving is, you know, we tend to f- celebrate not just with your immediate family, but with your kind of extended family. And my, uh, does anybody else have a mom who does this? Or like every four or five years, my mom says, we're going to not have turkey for Thanksgiving. We're like, what? 
And we always do, but we always have to go through the thing of like, mom, no, we're not having ham for Thanksgiving. It's not Thanksgiving. It's, it's not turkey, right? And in the same way, like just like Thanksgiving isn't Thanksgiving without turkey and stuffing, uh, there's this a ritual, there's, there's a thing that is done at the Passover meal. And uh, it's always celebrated in the same way. It was always celebrated with family. And uh, the younger children would be there. One of, the, one of the older family members would kind of preside over the meal. And the children would ask questions and say, why do we do this? And the, and the father or the grandfather would explain um, what is happening in, in the Passover meal. And uh, there would always be bread at the Passover meal. And at a certain point in the meal, the, uh, the one who's presiding would, would hold up the bread and would show it to everybody and, said, and he would say, uh, this is the bread of our affliction which our fathers ate in the wilderness. Remembering back to that time uh, when they lived as slaves in Egypt. And there was always wine and they, always, they drank four cups of wine that was drunk to remember the promises of God. And there was always a lamb. Lamb was the central part, remembering uh, that it was because of the blood of the lamb that the angel of death had passed over God's people. And so as Jesus celebrates this Passover with his disciples at the end of his earthly ministry, uh, we see that this is clearly a, a, a traditional Passover meal, and yet Jesus makes these really significant changes um, to the way that they celebrated the meal that, that would, you know, kind of don't really mean a whole lot to us. And yet if uh, they, would have, they would have stood out um, very abruptly to the, uh, the, the first audience or those reading, Jews reading this, uh, the Book of Mark in the, uh, in the first and second century. And, um, and if we can get our head around these significant changes that Jesus makes to the Lord's Supper, it'll help us understand what it means uh, because when Jesus takes the bread and he, he holds up the bread and he shows it to his disciples and they all know because they've all heard these Jewish men every year since they were children, they know that Jesus is going to say this is, the blood, this is the bread of our affliction that our fathers ate in the land uh, of Egypt. And instead, Jesus holds up the bread and he said, this is my body that's broken for you. And so Jesus is taking the bread and he's saying this, this, this is my this is the bread of my affliction this is the bread of my suffering because i'm going to um, lead to the final exodus and i'm going to once and for all lead you out of slavery and then jesus takes the wine and he says this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many um he doesn't, he doesn't remember back to the promises that God has made to Israel in the Old Testament, but he says, this is the blood of the new covenant, or the covenant which is poured out for many. And he adds, I will not drink of it again, until, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is saying is, is he's saying, I will be the one who will fulfill all of God's promises to you. Everything that God has promised to do, I will continue to, to fulfill. Uh, everything that God has promised that he has not yet done, I will fulfill uh, on your behalf. It is in my body and in my blood. I'm sealing to you the promises of God. And so with the bread and the wine, Jesus is saying, I will bring you out from slavery. I will, I will deliver you from the curse of death that hangs over your head um, by bearing the penalty for sin myself. Jesus is saying, it is my body that is broken. It is my blood that is shed uh, to forgive you of your sins, to pay the penalty, to ransom you out from under the curse of death. 
Jesus is saying, I will be the one who will fulfill the promise of God and bring you into the kingdom feast of the Father. And he says, I will do it all by taking your place, by substituting myself for you. So it's clear in in the Lord's Supper that Jesus is saying, I will be your substitute. I will be your sacrifice. And yet it is even more clear when we realize what is missing from the Passover. Uh, because the Passover, the Passover is not a vegetarian meal, right? Um, there's there's uh, bread, there's wine, and yet the central feast, the central element of the Passover, is the lamb. And uh, if you read the four Gospels, they all tell this account of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. It's a Passover meal, but not one of them mentions there being a lamb there. Where's the lamb? Well, in First Corinthians chapter five, the Apostle Paul answers the question by saying Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. See, there's no lamb at this Passover meal because there's no lamb on the table because the lamb is at the table. Jesus is the one uh, who bears the penalty for our sin. Jesus is the one who, has, um, who gives his body up, his life up, in order to be our sacrifice and our substitute. And... Um, I think in this you see what must have, at least initially, uh, been this kind of nagging question in the minds of, of uh, certainly at least those Jewish children. Um, wait, the angel of death passed over us, and we're all deserving of death because that is the penalty for sin. And yet if we go kill a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on our doorposts, God will accept the death of a lamb instead of my death? How could that possibly be? Here we see the answer to that question. Jesus is showing us that all of those lambs for thousands of years only pointed to the one who would finally come as God in the flesh and earn the right to forgive our sin. He would pay for our death and give us his life by earning it in his life and in his death, in his body. Uh, We've seen this several times. I've kind of been talking about this idea over the last several weeks. Um, We see this over and over again in the Gospel of Mark, that all real love is self-sacrificial. And uh, in order to truly love somebody, it requires substituting yourself um, for that person. Um, A couple examples. Uh, Think about this. well, let me tell this story. I remember when I was in eighth grade, and uh, like probably many of you in eighth grade, we took the eighth grade Washington, D.C. field trip. And um, it's an incredible, it's crazy to think that that's like, you send eighth graders across the country, like in the hundreds. <laughs> but I remember being at dinner, and it's sort of like, a, there's, there's like, I don't know, a couple hundred kids from eighth grade, and we're all in Washington, D.C. We're all eating at this, this um this restaurant together, we're acting like wild people, and um, nobody, like, nobody knows where to sit or who to sit by, and I'm saying this all to say that this was like, I had like four days in um, my entire existence where I was like in the cool crowd, uh, and they were all on this Washington DC trip. And uh, we were, I was sitting there with like my cool friends, and we were like, we were, I was part of the cool crowd. And uh, this, this guy walked by, and I'm not going to say his name, but just his name tells you, like, he's not cool. Let's just say his name was Ned. It wasn't Ned, but it's like, 
like you can't ever be cool with a name like this guy's name. And, and I don't know why, but for some reason I was like, hey, Ned, come and sit with us. And this girl looks at me. She's like, what in the world are you doing? And that was like the end of being cool for me. <laughs> uh, because there's no way to lessen the social isolation of a geeky kid in school without actually becoming a little bit geeky yourself. Uh, now, th that's kind of a silly example. Um, that's a real example. Uh, I'll give you another example of, of this reality, um, that loving somebody always means sacrificing for them. In uh, 2012, there were a series of tornadoes that tore through uh, a town in the Midwest, Henryville, Indiana. And uh, in this town, there was a woman named Stephanie Decker and she was at home with her young son and her young daughter as the tornado sweeps through the town. And as she hears the tornado coming, she gathers her children in the basement of her home. And she covers them in a blanket. And then she covers, you know, wraps her body around these children. And as the tornado sweeps through, it demolishes their house. And, um, you know, she's burying the debris in her body and two beams fall and sever her legs. Um, and she did actually survive. She lost her legs, uh, but her children came out unscathed. Uh, that, that, is the, that is the love of a mother, right? But that is the love of a savior. Um, all real life changing love is self-sacrificing. And the Lord's Supper is a meal that we celebrate together that shapes our identity because it reminds us of what has been done for us uh, as we take it we don't simply come and remember or listen to somebody say, Jesus died for you. Jesus gave himself up for you. But we actually, we, we, ex we accept that we receive it into our bodies as we eat it. Okay, so that's the meaning of the Lord's Supper. But uh, secondly, what I want to do is I want to, okay, so what? Like, what are the implications for us? And I want to um, point out four implications and uh, don't worry, this, this will be a little bit quicker. <laughs> um, but four, four implications that I think we see in this passage of the Lord's Supper. Uh, and the first is this. Who is this meal for? Um, did you notice that as they sit down and to, to you know, celebrate this meal together, Jesus begins by saying, one of you is about to betray me. And um, they all go around the table and they say, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And, um, of course, we know that Judas was the one that was going to betray, that did betray Jesus. But there's a real sense in which Judas just betrayed Judas, sorry, Judas just betrayed Jesus like the loudest. Um, because within 24 hours of this moment, uh, all 12 of Jesus' followers have abandoned him. Um, he's arrested and they scatter, and Peter is kind of following along, trying to see what's going on, and he crumbles under the interrogation of a young girl who comes and says, you were with him, I saw you, and Peter says, not me, I don't even know. I don't even know this man. Um, Jesus says, one of you will betray me, and, and, and I think that what their response is, they're, they're all saying, surely not me. It, it couldn't be me, Jesus, it couldn't be me. Um, but within, when I, within hours, they all turn their back on him. Uh, so, so what's the implication? 
of that? Well, the, the implication is this, that this is a meal for people that are a mess. <laughs> um, if, if, you, if you take from this the idea that um, you need to make yourself worthy to come to the Lord's Supper, then you're totally missing the point. I mean, think about it like this. Have you ever been to a meal? Have you ever been at a meal where you are responsible for the death of the host? I mean, that's what they're doing. These, these men are there and they're sitting and they're eating this meal. And they are each, as we are, responsible for the death of the host. Um, this is a meal for those who don't have their stuff together. I was, um, last week we were looking for a, I was looking on Yelp for a place to go out to dinner as we were on our way back from Ohio. And um, I saw this place that it looked good, and but it said um, it was kind of near the beach. I don't know if that's why it said this, but it said proper attire required. <laughs> and I remember thinking, like, what what does proper attire mean? Um, am I acceptable? Will I be welcomed? But at Jesus' table, the needy are welcomed, while the proud are turned away. Uh, the only thing that makes us worthy is realizing that we are completely unworthy to show up at the, at the table of Jesus. And it takes the work, it takes the work of the gospel in our lives to get us to the point um, where we can say, I don't bring anything to the Lord's table except my need for it. It's only when we see the love of Jesus, the life that he lived on us, the sacrifice that he made for us, that we can then uh, accept and look at ourselves as we really are that we can be honest about who we really are. Um, I mean, think, think about it like that. Who, who is the biggest, uh, the biggest sinner at this table? And Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And, and these men are saying, not me, not me. So you're the, the um, you know, you're the, are you saying you're the least likely to betray Jesus? Like, I'm number 12. I'm the least likely out of 12 people to betray Jesus. Um, another way to say that is this. Are you... Have you come to the place where you could say, I am the biggest sinner in my family? Or um, I am the biggest sinner uh, in this church? Or I'm the biggest sinner when I go to work? Um, there's a, a pastor in our um, denomination uh, several years ago who um, his son um, was in rehab. His son was uh, an addict and went to rehab and, and part of the uh, rehab recovery process, they have family day. And so this pastor goes to visit his son uh, in recovery. And as they're leaving, um, one of the workers at the, at the recovery place looks at this man and says, asks him, says, says to him, who's your God? And this pastor kind of stumbles and doesn't, you know, is kind of taken aback by the question. He kind of stumbles and says, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'm a, I'm a pastor. And, uh, and this man looks at him and says, no, your God is drugs. And uh, so this pastor goes to see his son at recovery. And somebody who works there uh, calls him out on the secret that nobody knew that for years he had been addicted to prescription narcotics. And uh, so he goes to family day to see his son in recovery and doesn't end up going home. 
and he's in um, a six-week recovery program. And he said it was not until week five that he could admit that he had a problem. <laughs> um, you're in recovery, right? Why does it take until week six to admit that he has a problem? But the gospel frees us to admit who we really are. Um, Jesus does not say this to the, his disciples. He doesn't say this to us to shame us. He's not asking, he doesn't, he's not trying to make you feel bad about who you really are. He loves you. He's inviting you to eat with him. He bears the expense necessary to love you in his life and in his death. So can you come to his table and acknowledge your need for him? That's all that is required. It's for people who are broken. It's for people who are a mess. Second implication of the meaning of this meal is that this is a meal, this is a family meal. This is a, this is a meal to be celebrated with, with our family, with our new family. Um, I, I said this earlier, but one of the realities of the Passover is that it was always celebrated with family. Just like we, I mean, imagine that, uh, you know, you come home from work one day in the middle of November and tell your wife, yeah, my boss said that I have to go and celebrate Thanksgiving with him. And we're all going to go to the office and there's going to be our boss and his 12 managers that are going to sit in our office and celebrate Thanksgiving together. <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. Who does this guy think he is? That's kind of what Jesus is doing. I mean, the, the audacity of uh, all of these, you know, all of his disciples had families of their own. Uh, I mean, not they weren't all fathers, but they were all part of a family. Um, and Jesus is like co-opting their family holiday and, um, and celebrating the Lord's Supper with them. Why is he ruining these people's vacation? Well, what God is doing through Jesus is nothing short of amazing and audacious because what the New Testament makes clear is that, is that God is going to relate to his people like a father to his children, not like a boss to his employees, not only like a king to his subjects, but like a father to his children. And, uh, I mean, Ephesians 2 says, uh, remember who you were. Remember that you were separated from God. Remember that you were alienated from his people. Remember that you um, were strangers from God's purpose. But now, Ephesians 2 says, you are members of the household of God. You are the family of God. And so the, the Lord's Supper is a, is a family meal for the new family of God. And what Jesus is saying, what this is saying is this, that if you have put your trust in Jesus, you have a new family. You have a new family. Uh, you are welcome at the, at, the, at the table, at God's family table. Um, you're invited to the family meal. Now, I don't know how that lands with you because I feel like that kind of cuts two ways at the same time because on the one hand, it means you are a part of the family of God, but it also involves a responsibility to being a part of that family. On the one hand, it means it's an incredible privilege. Um, you have access to God. He invites you to his table. You get to sit down with him and know him. I heard this story um, when uh, President Obama... Don't freak out. I'm going to say something. That's actually not even nice about Obama. Just, you know, some of you guys freak out every time I say something about Obama. <laughs> this, this little African-American boy uh, goes to Washington, D.C. Um, for the inauguration, uh, President Obama's first inauguration. And he takes the bus, and he's at the, 
the bus depot, and he's, there's millions of people coming to Washington, D.C. For, uh, for the inauguration. And um, this boy gets off the bus, and he's kind of looking around. He's looking up. You know, he sees all the people, and he, um, he's so excited to be there. He's looking behind the posts. He finally looks at his mom and goes, well, where's Obama? You know, this boy is so excited that he thinks, just, if I just get to Washington, D.C., I'm going to meet the president. Maybe I'll go to his house. Maybe I'll, um, obviously, you know, it's the, the naivete of a child to think that you're going to go to Washington, D.C., and you're going to get to go to the White House and eat at the, eat at the president's table. But that is the way we come to the Lord's Supper. Uh, God is inviting us to come and fellowship with him, to come and eat. It's a privilege, and we come kind of this sense of awe, like wide-eyed wonder that the God of the universe would come and meet with us, invite us into his family. It's an incredible privilege uh, that you have a new family, and yet it also involves a responsibility, doesn't it? Because um, Christianity is always lived out in community. Part of being a member of the family of God, the household of God, uh, it means that, I mean, that, that, that we don't take the Lord's Supper on our own, but that we always, it's never just about me and Jesus. Um, we are always coming to God with his people. We don't live the Christian life on our own. Uh, being a part of God's family means that we, um, uh, I, I can put it like this, like we don't, we don't just show up at church <laughs> for an hour a week and then, Man, hustle back to the car. You've got to get back there quick before anybody grabs you. Like, imagine if you showed up at your house for an hour a week, and then you're like, all right, I checked my time, and I'm out. I'm going back to do my own thing now. Um, no, you, like, being a part of a family means you unload the dishwasher. means you fold the laundry, things that I, apparently I'm supposed to be doing on a regular basis. Um, you're a part of the family. We live in a world um, that is obsessed with the idea of community and has absolutely no idea how to find it. Uh, I have a good friend who's, uh, he's, he, was, he was our pastor in, um, when we lived in, uh, in Salt Lake City. And um, he's got, uh, well, one of, his, one of his kids is in his 20s, uh, out of the house, uh, is, is not walking with Jesus at this point in his life. And uh, I saw my friend recently, and he was telling me that he, about this conversation he had with his son, where uh, his son, is, he's, he's gotten fired from three jobs in the last two years. He's kind of realizing that, like, well, the real world is beginning to set in. And he's also realizing that his friends are losers. <laughs> and he said to his dad, um, he, he goes, Dad, it's like, I wish I could just find a place where people cared about things that are actually important, and that they would just welcome me for whoever I am. And his dad said, that's the church. Um, and it was like this moment of realization that, um, it, I mean, let me, let, me, let me put it like this. Being a part of the family of God does not mean that we all agree on everything. Uh, we're not the family of God because we all agree, because we all have the same preferences. Um, being a part of the family of God means that you are a, the, a member of the same family as people that you have no, nothing earthly in common with, except you have a common father. And so we can argue with each other and still love each other. And uh, we can disagree with each other without bailing on each other. 
Um, this means that the church is a family where all are welcome, regardless of who you are, your background, your color, your creed, your wealth, your status. Um, it's a family meal. Thirdly, um, it's a meal that prepares us for mission in this world. Um, this, uh, it, one of the things that I love about the Bible is every time uh, it always is unfolding itself in new ways. Um, and this, this time as I've studied the book of Mark this summer, uh, I've just been struck by what a masterful storyteller uh, Mark is, or God through Mark, um, however you want to say it. But it's been so incredible to see that these themes just kind of are woven all through the book of Mark. And uh, one of those themes um, I, I've seen over and over again is this theme of community that starts off with just this description of the Trinity at Jesus' baptism and, and, um, and who God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, living in community and inviting us into that. And we, it's all throughout the book of Mark we see it here in the Lord's Supper too. Um, but one thing that has really hit me in Mark is, is, um, is kind of this, like, it's like this drumbeat refrain where, where Jesus keeps saying, following me is going to be hard. <laughs> And um, I think that that's something I've tended to want to minimize in my life uh, and in my, in my faith and following Jesus. But um, over and over again, we've seen that following Jesus in this world is going to be hard. Um, Jesus has, you know, said not directly, but he's, he's implied power is found in giving up control. And uh, wealth is found in giving away what we have. He said... Uh, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. Uh, over and over again, Jesus is calling us to actually follow him, and he said it's not going to be, it's not going to be easy. And I guess I've kind of come to the conclusion that he, like, I think he's actually serious. <laughs> what if he actually means this stuff? Uh, it's so. We're, it's, we so often talk about, um, do you believe in Jesus? And, uh, and we kind of reduce Christianity to believing. Do you believe the Bible is true? Do you believe that he you know, was the Son of God? Do you believe that he rose from the dead? And that's good, but being a Christian or a Christ one means being a follower of Jesus. And one of the things that I've been trying to kind of emphasize throughout the book of Mark is that Mark wants us to read this story of the life of Jesus and come away with the conclusion that he is both our Savior and our Lord. And it's very easy for us as Christians in the 21st century in America to say, like, I believe that Jesus died for me. He died to take care of my sin. Yes, I believe that he is our Savior. But we have a much more difficult time with the idea that Jesus is the Lord. Um, that he, that he has a claim on our life that he says, this is how you ought to live if you are my follower. And to me, um, it's incredibly convicting. It's also, I think, frankly, really awe-inspiring. Um, because I, I've, I think that we will all get to a point in our lives where we say there's got to be something more to it than, than this. I mean, most of us, live fairly comfortable lives in South Orange County? Have you gotten to the point where you're like, is this really, 
it? <laughs> is this all there is? And what, what Mark is saying to us is Jesus has a purpose for you. Uh, he is calling you to follow him into a life of adventure, and it is awe-inspiring. And the question then is, how can I possibly sustain that? Um, because it's one thing to read something in the Bible and be like, wow, that's really cool. Um, but then there's Netflix. <laughs> you know, and like I watched four episodes of a show that I know doesn't matter last night on Netflix. Like, why will I do that with my time? It's because... Um, Think about it like this. If, if I wake up each morning kind of with a sense of emptiness, I'm going to go out into the world looking for anything to fill myself up. Uh, so my relationships are about me trying to make myself feel better. And my reputation or my work, however externally good it might be, it's about me trying to make a name for myself. And yet if I wake up in the morning full, then I can go out into the world and follow Jesus in this life of adventure no matter what he calls me to do. Um, the Lord's Supper fills you. <clears throat> it's, it's, it's actually a meal. Um, it's not filling you with food. It's filling you with faith. <clears throat> we believe that something actually happens. We're not just remembering that Jesus said to pretend this was his body and blood. Uh, but that we're actually being nourished. Our faith is being strengthened. Jesus is filling us with himself and then sending us out into the world to follow him. Uh, I think about it like this. One of my boys is... Um, is a, is a very affectionate, touchy, I call him like touchy-feely boy. And um, I am not a touchy-feely person. I want my space. I want people to leave me alone. <laughs> um, and so it's been a challenge to figure out what does it look like to love one of my sons that really wants to be touched. And um, we, we've come to talk about the fact that he has a hug tank. And um, when his hug tank is empty, and some, he's told us that he now has three hug tanks, one time he told me he had 17 hug tanks. And, um, and I think I've convinced him he only has three. But, but there, are, there are moments in life where things are just erupting and everybody's mad and we're like, oh. And we've kind of realized talking about it doesn't do any good if his hug tank is empty. And so coming and, and filling his hug tank up, which depletes my whatever tank, my leave me alone tank. <laughs> But it's pouring myself into my son to fill him up that allows him to actually act like a sane person. And that's what's happening in the Lord's Supper. Jesus is filling us up at his own expense in order to send us into the world. <laughs> Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that uh, you come and make yourself known that um, you come to speak to us, that you come to give yourself for us, and that you, um, you come to sacrifice yourself for us. And so, Jesus, I pray that as we come to your table now, that you would use these uh, simple elements, the bread and the wine, to fill us, um, to show us uh, in tangible, tactile ways, how much you love us. Would you fill us with yourself? Thank you that you were emptied in order to make us whole. Would you nourish us as we feast on you by faith that you might then send us out into the world 
uh, as your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.